Yeah, so they start out with like a 55-pound block of aluminum to make that thing. Yeah, it's a pretty hefty chunk. I've lifted them up, you know. Well, yeah, and it's not easy to pick up off a table. Uh, 52 pounds of chips are generated by cutting a Hoyt HyperEdge Elite. That's the answer to the question we got from a listener in Australia. Wanted to know how many pounds of chips are generated by cutting a Hoyt HyperEdge Elite. You know what they do with those chips? They recycle them? They recycle them at very high value because Mm -hmm. it's all the same exact alloy. Right. And so it's worth more. They take them and they have a machine that compresses them into what looks like a soup can. Yeah, it's slugs. Yeah, slugs. Slug. Yeah. And they're uh, they're actually worth a reasonable amount. 52 pounds of chips is probably 150 bucks worth of aluminum, something like that. So, you know, uh, that's cut from a solid block of of aluminum. Hi, I'm George Tekmachov with Steve the Big Cat Anderson. Back for another Easton podcast. And this one's going to focus a lot on your questions. But first, let's talk about what's happened this past weekend. Yeah, we had the first World Cup in Marrakech, first indoor World Cup. Yes, indeed, on the road to Marrakech. And uh, from Marrakech, next will be Bangkok, then the one we're going to in Nîmes, uh, because I have no desire to get back on an airplane and go to Bangkok. <laughs> and, and right after that, we've got the, uh, uh, the shoot that Lancaster Archery puts on, which is not part of this circuit, but nope. an important indoor shoot. And then followed by that uh, very quickly, the big tournament in France in Nîmes, run by our good friend Olivier and the Arc Club de Dîmes. So that's going to be a lot of stuff, very, very short order. It's a busy January for us. Yes, it is. Because we've talked about ATA that show. before, and I'm sure everyone's tired of hearing us complain, but it, yeah. I think it looms on our on yeah. our minds, you know. So Pat Houston throws it down in uh, in Marrakech in the, um, you know, he's still a junior shooter. Yeah. And, and he went up against um, a guy who won the thing last year, Matteo Fisiori of Italy. Yeah, very, uh, like an indoor specialist type. Yeah, and, and Matteo actually uh, won the thing last year. I think I mentioned that. And um, started out with a pair of perfect shots, uh, perfect 30s. And then um, Houston's on the ropes, and he comes back. So that was pretty solid performance from, uh, from young Mr. Houston. Now then, for the women, um, well, first let's talk about the, uh, the compound men. we got uh, Stefan Hansen recovering from his being crushed by you in Mexico last week. <laughs> oh, that's, that's not the best way to put it. He shot well this week, yeah. He, I mean, I think he'd rather have the win this weekend than in Mexico. But Yeah, maybe so. But uh-huh. hey, you know. So he had a 148 to win the uh, the match. And yeah. uh, Peter Elzinga uh, dropped a few arrows. And um, in the end, Stefan beat Peter by four. Yeah, Peter said something about how he couldn't, he just couldn't get on track and you know, no pressure on Stefan at that point. Yeah, Stefan so. apparently changed to a back tension release, which uh, I guess he's got the groove on that now. Yep. Gwendolina Sartori took the uh, recurve women's competition. She beat Berenger Shu, two-time holder of the world record, mm. 6-2 in set play. Sandrine uh, Vandionant, the great archer from France, uh, took the compound women's gold. France had a big turnout for this tournament. Yeah, they were, I think, 25% of the shooters. Yeah, 50-something of the shooters were from France, if I'm not mistaken. So. Yep. Pretty solid turnout there. So if we look at the, um, you know, obviously the rankings are going to be for the Indoor World Cup. The rankings will be right down the line of, of who uh, placed at this thing. So uh, Yeah, it just follows the results. Yeah, pretty solid um, pretty solid all around. Uh, there was an all-Schlusser showdown. Yes. In the first pass, I Mike guess. Mike and Boss. Yeah, so what happens when you're up against your dad? 
I and, really like both those guys too. Yeah, they're great. I, guys. I have a quick story to tell. Actually. Oh yeah, go ahead. So, and maybe I've already told this. I don't think I have, but um, there was a video floating around after Mike broke the world record when he shot six hundred, and in the video, he uh, he swears. They're, they're, they ask him, you know, what what went through your mind when you shot the last end, and he had one arrow he thought he had missed, and he said, "Oh, sh-, yeah, you know." The, the old S word there. And, uh, and I, I, at the time was running Hoyt's Facebook page and I shared the video and said, you know, here's Mike's reactions after, uh, breaking the world record. He does order, he does owe us a quarter for the swear jar, you know, 25 cent piece for the swear jar. Common thing here in the States, you know, if kids cuss, they have to pay their parents money. It goes in the, in the cuss word jar. And uh, yours, yours was enough to send you to college, wasn't it? <laughs> not quite, not quite. But you know, I had a full scholarship anyway, so I think my parents, you know, bought an RV or something with it. No. <laughs> Anyhow, my dad's a listener of ours, so oh. he'll get a kick out of that because he doesn't have an RV. But uh, it's a good story. So <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's, a good story. it's like when you go to a bar with your friend and he's telling a story to some girl. Don't correct him. Yeah. So anyhow. We get we get to Vegas and I see Boss Mike's dad, and what does he do? He hands me a quarter and he goes for the Hoyt swear jar. Nice, <laughs> yeah, it was a nice touch. He's a good guy. Yeah. I, I I put out on Twitter that uh, it was simply Mike putting his coach back on the line where he belonged. <laughs> <laughs> get back behind me. You That's got a right. job to do. You got a job to do. He dropped a uh, one fifty on his dad, and his dad hung in there, one forty. He said he said on his Facebook post that he he gave him a scare for two arrows, so he must have opened up ten ten. And then, you know, at yeah. that point, it was all Mike. Yeah. So pretty solid shooting from our, our good buddy, the uh, Mr. Perfect. But uh, he didn't – he kind of faded partway through, I guess. Yeah, I didn't have his best results. But, you know, it's Mike. He'll figure it out. Oh, yeah. He's still got plenty of time. And, and you know, he's going to perform in uh, Neem. And, and so yeah. will Stefan. And so will some of these other guys. You're, you're going to shoot Neem. I'll be shooting Neem. I mean, that's why – Neem, Neem is really what this builds up to. Yeah. I wish – I wish I was at some of these events just because it's great practice. It's great work towards, you know, something bigger. But In a tournament environment. Yeah. it's And we, we talked about, you know, discussing this. The, the Indoor World Cups, they can be hard to get to. Um, that's why, you, like in Marrakesh, you don't see big numbers there. You don't see big numbers in Bangkok. Um, but Neem seems to pull the larger crowd, and it's always been a, a large tournament. But I just can't. For me, I have a hard time justifying going to the Indoor World Cups based on, you know, cost to pay out and, and things like that. So, cool tournaments, really fun, great practice, but uh, they can be less than economical for a lot of people throughout the globe. Oh, yeah, it's an expensive thing to get to. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit pre-show when we were discussing um, how nice it would be is, you know, it would be great if, if the Indoor World Cup had the same prestige and drive that you see for the Outdoor World Cup. But the difference is the Outdoor World Cup drives, uh, to a degree, Olympic archery for mm-hmm. the recurves and world rankings for the compounds. Yeah. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel, right? There's a pretty big prize at the end of the tunnel, big incentive to make it to that final in yeah. Mexico City. The Indoor World Cup, while becoming a more prestigious event, is really defined by Neiman Vegas. Yeah, and it's... To me, I would hate to see it look like the outdoors. Um, I mean, the reason it is fun is because 
everyone can just pay their money, go shoot an indoor world cup. It's an open event. Yeah. That's cool. If you haven't done it and you have an opportunity, do it once at least, you know, go to name for sure. Uh, if you're in another part of the globe and it's easier to get to Bangkok or Marrakech, do it. It's, it's worth shooting and experiencing it at least once in your archery career. Says uh, Chris Chris uh, Wells in his story on World Archery mentions that it's uh, fifty of the two hundred athletes competing in Marrakech from France. Yeah, so twenty five percent. And we should note, uh, shout out to our friend Chris. He he actually competed. He did. He competed, and he was like thirty fourth or fifth. He almost made the cut. That's really good. I had no idea he even shot. He uh, he said that. It was a great outing because he hit the target all 60 times. Well, that, hey, I won't dispute that. No. Pretty solid. Yeah, good. for a guy who does nothing but work at archery events. Yeah, you know? good on you, Chris. Good yeah. job. Congrats, I, Chris. Yes, indeed. Any Anytime you can uh, get all hits is a good time. Yeah, and we, we've harped on Chris enough on this show. We should probably throw him some love. There's some we, props. We There's some props yeah. for our buddy Chris. Let's see if he's really listening. All right. Let's um, – I think that covers it for that. But, you know, I think we got Bangkok coming up. You had some observations about that. You think that counts for some more on the recurve side especially. Yeah, I think you add in the uh, the Asian side of it, the Koreans. It's going to be fireworks. And I, now I, I didn't even mention this to you in our pre-show, which we don't really do, but I, I think Bangkok holds a world record. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be men's recurve. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if a Korean shows up, yeah, if we get, if we get the right Koreans there and I, and I think in men's recurve, there's no such thing as the wrong Koreans. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's some that still no, suck at archery. Not, not that they allow going to a tournament. <laughs> exactly. But my, my thoughts is, uh, I was thinking about that the other day, you know, what's the next world record to go? Obviously it's going to be indoor. Obviously it can't be men's compound. Women's compound. Erica Jones has a pretty stout one up there at 595 which our friend Sarah Lopez has uh, set her sights on. Yeah, so we'll see what happens there. She, for, for a compounder, it's a matter of, if you have the capability, it's a matter of shooting enough tournaments until you have that tournament where you just get on the rails and go. You know, because it's easy to, to miss five or six. It's really easy. So, as an aside, WA has gone ahead and ratified all of Sarah's records that she that. set back on uh, the 11th of this month. So 1424 for the 1440 round, 50 meter round, 356. Uh, and I think they mean to say that's the 60 meter round. That's a typo on the World Archery website there. It says 50, but they mean 60. And then 50 is 356 as well, it says, which I don't think that's right. I don't remember. So I'm, I'm just reading it off the webpage here. And, uh, oh, no, she... Is a 356 at 60 meters from a different date? Oh, there you go. 911. Yep. That's, I don't know. It's the 50 meter record. And that, oh, hold on. 11.9, 11.10. I see. I see how this works. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that was the same All round. Right. European uh, dating here. Uh-huh. And then we got, uh, you know, like I said, 14.24. That's not going to fall anytime soon, I don't think. Mm-mm. That might Unless be. Unless she breaks it herself. That might be about a five year lifespan on that record. Potentially. If you look at the rankings right now, the world rankings, and these are all based on outdoors, you know, mm-hmm. compound men, you got uh, Sebastian Pinot, you got Mike Schlusser, Stefan Hansen, the world uh, champion, Rio Wild is fourth, and moving up into the top five is Rajat Chauhan, who just took the title at the uh, Asian Championship. Yep. For the recurve men, it's Kim Woo Jin, Lee Seng Yun, Rick Van Der Ven hanging tough at third, Kuban Chan is fourth, and Brady Ellison is fifth. You know what's interesting? If you actually look at 
arrow score average. Those rankings can really flip flop. So it shows you how important head to head match play is. Yeah. Not it's not how good you shoot, it's how well you compete. For the compound women, Sarah Lopez, number one, no surprise there. Natalia Abdieva, who did well at the final number two right now. Marina uh, Maria Vinogradova is third. Crystal Galvin, we just uh she and her husband just visited the office a couple days ago. Uh, they are; she is fourth, and Linda Ochoa, a certain Mrs. Anderson, is uh, fifth right now. And then for the recurve women, you got Choi Misun of Korea. Kibo Bay is second, pretty solid. Our good friend Mackenzie Brown is third, and uh, Kang Che Young is fourth. Tanya Ting is fifth. It's nice to see a nice American girl in there in the top five. I have to assume that's the highest an American woman has ever been ranked. Now, Katuna's been up there, but I don't think she's been third. Highest three? I don't... Maybe we'll look into Maybe that. not when she was shooting for the U.S. Mm. We, we will have to look into that. I'm not sure. But I'm thinking that uh, that might be the highest ranking we've seen from an American woman since certainly Jenny Nichols. Yeah. You know. So pretty pretty good props there to our uh, our buddy Mackenzie. All right. Moving on. We've got a raft of listener questions. We are going to keep this particular podcast shorter. We're 13 minutes in, so I think the listener questions will be enough to round it out. I'll start out with Pat Murray's question. Pat's um, Pat doesn't say where he's from. He says, loves the podcast. Found out it a couple of weeks ago and caught up with all the shows. Ouch. <laughs> it's got to be painful listening to us <laughs> 17 hours in a row. <laughs> Jeez. Anyway, uh, he absolutely loves archery, right? He shot for a few years, but just this last year, he's broken into target. I absolutely love it. I've been shooting 3D and indoors now. My question is about coaching. You always talk about how important it is, and I agree. I don't want to spend time on learning bad habits. But how do you find a good coach? I'm in the Northeast, I presume in the U.S., and have been looking for a coach for a while now with no luck. Any tips for finding a good coach or anything to look for? Well, again, the USA Archery website, usaarchery.org has a database of available coaches and you know um, a coach is actually technically anybody with a level three certification you're an instructor if you're a level one or a level two but there's nothing wrong with starting out with those basics and most level twos who've gone through the trouble of getting the certification at least have a clue and and probably can can at least eyeball your form and tell you whether uh, you're doing something wrong or right and get you on the right path but if you want serious coaching, I, I'm going to suggest you look at a level three. It's not that a, it's not that a certificate ensures that you're going to have a good coach. It means that the coach has been educated in the basics of the U.S. system, and will, you know, will not do something that will potentially hurt you or set you back. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it's supposed to mean anyway. I so, always say, you know, find their references, see who else they have coached, and the kind of success that person's had. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's we're, we're all so accessible, too, within archery. I mean, fire off a message to some people and ask around. Yeah. You know, for example, if you were to go to the Easton Archery Target Facebook site and pose your question, I'll bet you you'd get a bunch of people jumping on that one. Easton Archery Target is on Facebook, and that's our target-oriented uh, Facebook page. So you might check there. Uh, if you're in New York City, per se, I'd send you straight to ProLine Archery and get uh, either Guy Gehrig or Joe McGlynn to help you out. But I'm not sure where you are in the Northeast. Uh, certainly, if you're in Connecticut or anywhere around there, Rhode Island, Mass, then you'd want to go to Hall's Arrow, get Butch Johnson to help you out. Or, mm-hmm. you know, his, uh, his wife, Teresa, is a top coach as well. So there's plenty of coaching opportunities, especially in the Northeast. But, you know, again, it's, it's like um, when I started out in archery way back when, um, 
I didn't know there was such a thing as a pro shop. You know, this can be a tough sport to break into if you don't know what you're, you know, don't have a resource mm-hmm. of that sort of thing, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think about coaching and, you know, the, the people who kind of guided me along the ways, they were just some, just some guys, you know, locally. They, yeah. Mostly what they did was show me how certain releases worked, certain equipment worked, and then kind of send me on my way. You know, you're already, guideline. you're already a top level athlete in a couple of different sports and you were able to self coach yourself to a high level. Not everybody can do that. I know it's, it's a struggle in golf. I'm really, <laughs> I mean, my golf game is not coming along as quickly as my archery. Game. But if you had an art, a golf coach, you might be not going to do it. I'll I, figure it I out. I know because you're trying to have fun at it, but <laughs> all right, moving on. <laughs> Stainless steel points versus tungsten points out of a recurve. Pros and cons. Uh, and this question comes from Alec in Australia. Alec, Alec Potts, a, a national team shooter out of Australia, actually. Okay. Well, here you go, Alec. Uh, so what's the what's the reason for stainless points versus tungsten points? Well, you know, you've got about an eight-time cost differential there. So there must be something about tungsten that makes it worthwhile for some shooters. The answer is tough target materials. Um, I developed the tungsten point back in, actually started working on that back in 91, 92, to um, try to give a far front of center balance to the arrow back when we were working with ACEs. But uh, kind of, you know, abandoned it until I developed the X10 and wanted to use tungsten because the length of the shank inside the X10 was pretty long and hard for some people to glue. Tungsten's 2.2 times denser than steel, so it's easier to glue into the shaft because it's much shorter. In addition, you get a little bit more front of center. It's a, it's a little overrated, to be honest. I, it's not that much of a difference, but it's enough that um, that it you know is is easy to glue into the shaft, very durable when hitting hard target material like stramet, for example. So, um, which by the way has no business being used as an archery target, in my opinion. I'll just throw that out there you know, Stramit and some of this other stuff out there 16th century target butts for 21st century arrows me not like all right stainless points if you're shooting into normal target materials like what wa requires for tournaments then you're fine with stainless points if you're shooting a recurve you're probably fine with stainless points you know spend the money on other stuff uh, is my opinion um now second question he's got wants to know if there's an optimal position for the limb bolts on a recurve riser to enhance forgiveness. For example, will a bow with the bolts all the way out perform any better than a bow with the bolts all the way in? We just answered that last week regarding compounds. We did. Now, the difference between a compound and a recurve, though, is when you do crank up or down in bow weight, you change the fundamental geometry of the bow. So let me give you the answer from the late, great Earl Hoyt, Junior himself, who answered this question for me back around 86 when I asked him the question personally. I saw him down in Atlantic City at the Atlantic City Classic. I walked up to him and I said, Mr. Hoyt, I've got a question for you. And it was exactly the same question. Earl preferred that his bow designs be shot with the limbs cranked out. All the way out, huh? Well, not all the way out, but out. That must be why Hoyts are rated three turns out for limb weight it is as a matter of fact and you know the the conventional wisdom this was not based on science by the way in 1954 Earl Hoyt came up with fundamental geometry that forms every recurve bow out there today for the most part mm-hmm. Win and Win's got a little tweak on it Hoyt with the Ion series had a tweak on it but fundamentally the geometries you know when we're talking about your GMX riser for example 
We're talking about your original Hoyt geometry. So, you know, that that was Earl's point of view, but many, many shooters have proven through performance that the bow is consistent no matter what position you have it set to. And that when you fundamentally change that geometry, like with the Ion bow, the Ion X, uh, which moves the pivot point about an inch and a quarter, that it's still fundamentally super accurate. Mm -hmm. It's what Ojin Hyuk used to win the London Olympic yeah. Games. And, you know, I mean, a guy like that, he's going to shoot what's the most accurate thing for him. He's not going to, he doesn't care what, what you can't said. sponsor a yeah. guy like that. He's going to shoot what he wants. Right. He went and bought his own bows, for goodness sake. So, you know, there used to be the thought that there was an optimal position for limb bolts on the recurve, but the truth is it's been proven that you can play around. And, and the win and win bows have the geometry backed out of a Hoyt crunch down all the way. And you can't tell me those don't shoot. So, you know, clearly it works either way. Yeah, they're all just repeatable machines, Yeah, you know. Yeah. You've got a question there from uh, Pat Murray, I believe. Oh, we did his. His okay. was the uh, Northeast coaching. Okay, yeah. Sorry about that, Pat. And Was it not? Yeah. No, you were. You had it right. Um, I, yep. I was on the wrong page. Okay, so we got Steven Snyder with a question. He's, uh, and this is a question for you, Steve. Received my first dozen... 2712s. Oh, so self-serving part of the uh, message. Love the podcast. All right, <laughs> great. Received my first dozen 2712s for indoor and need setup info. Can the big cat go over setting up arrows? Full shaft, point weight, fletching. Thanks, guys. Yes, so on 2712s, <clears throat> I've covered this, I think, on, on the podcast maybe. I don't know. But I always start with the shaft at 32 inches. That's the standard measurement. So from the groove of the knock to the cut, 32 inches. Um, from there, I, I test with 250, 275, and 300 grain points. And first start at 32 inches, shoot them all, build up three arrows, shoot a few games with each one, um, see what you think. From there, you may try cutting them down to 31 inches. Uh, I think that's kind of the sweet spot for most guys is between 31 and 32 inches on the length. Uh, I, I know one guy, one high-level shooter who shoots them shorter than that, uh, there, there's probably more, but you know, just off the top of my head, I know of one guy who shoots them at thirty and a half inches, and that's Rob Morgan, who's made the shoot off like a billion times at Vegas from uh, Wyoming, uh, Montana, Montana. Sorry, yep. I always mix those two up. Yeah, so that's kind of the starting point on length, and and from that point on, you just test it. It's, I mean, if you're a taller guy, longer draw length, you may try thirty-one inches just to stiffen the arrow up a tad. Um, I've been shooting mine at 32 and I think it, it may be time to go to 31. It's just a matter of your good shots are going to go in the middle regardless. But when you make that little bit of a weak shot or, or you're torquing the bow a little bit, you just want to see how badly it misses. And from there, that's all you're really looking for. I mean, the, the thing should hit pretty much behind the pin, you know, that's the idea of getting the bow set up. But when you make a bad shot, how bad does it miss? Veins. What are you doing? Uh, four inch vein. You can't, you can't have too much vein on these. It's such a big arrow with a lot of point weight. You got to be able to control it. So four inch vein works awesome. If you have cable clearance issues, four inch, four or five inch feathers work as well. I saw you're shooting the AAEs right now. Yeah, I use the AAE veins, same as the Easton Diamond vein. Um, it's a it's a four inch, you know, standard plastic fletch vein. Uh, for guys who have, well, my my thing is I always do left helical. Uh, gets me more clearance on the cables. Um, I personally think everyone should 
fletch their compound arrows left helical with at least with these large indoor aluminums uh, just to get that clearance on the cables and from there um, you know just start shooting them see what you get all right i wish i could have seen montana <laughs> one ping only for silly <laughs> i i'm not familiar with the reference oh there. never mind it's too <laughs> long of a story one ping only for silly one ping all right george and steve can you explain the advantages of different sight bar setups what the different lengths and range of adjustments have to offer and uh, he's got a second question that goes with that. What scope housing diameters should be used indoors versus outdoors? So that's my dad's question, actually. Oh, is it? My dad. I'm looking at it. Podcast. Mike Anderson. There it is. Yeah. I, I was wondering if it was possibly. Oh, so you know, go ahead. So go. my dad's a farmer. So he's you know he's in the tractor all day long, working in the in the tractor there. He's got some time to listen to our podcast. Nice. So he uh, he kills his time with us. I, nice. I feel bad for him. He probably feels obligated, like I'm going to ask him questions about it or something, but you know, maybe he thinks I'm interesting. I don't know. So um, so dad, <laughs> he could call me at any time and ask me this. Yeah, but, okay. But he's giving us yeah. content, so let's be yeah. grateful. <laughs> uh, so the advantages of different sight bar setups, and this is you know something that everyone's going to ask. I presume he means lengths here. Yep, lengths yeah. and range of adjustments. Uh, what scope housing diameter should be used indoors or outdoors? So uh, bar length, you want to go – so all you're really getting out of bar length is – what what we would refer to as a uh, peep to pin measurement, so your sight radius. Um, that now can, this is important in determining your diopter on your scope. Yeah. So the further out your scope is, the more powerful the magnification effectively becomes. Um, now I've got another answer for that, and it depends on whether or not you shoot field archery unmarked. Yeah. Well, we don't need to go into that. Yes, we do. <laughs> so you don't want me to reveal this <laughs> secret of field archery? It's in the book. Everyone knows it. I just sound judge. Which secret? Um, so anyhow, yeah, I mean, your your scope sizing can also be used for framing and, and moving the bar in and out can fine-tune that, per se. Yes, it can. Uh, moving the bar in and out also affects torque tuning. If you've, I know we've talked about this before. If you're subscribing to that and you're torque tuning your bow, uh, moving is, the sidebar in Is this a Jesse Broadwater thing? Yeah, kind of. Wilkie claims to have fallen on this. Um, somewhere around 2007, yeah. 2008. I think he's right, too. I mean, he's shown me what he had done back then, and I'm pretty sure he yeah. did. I'm not sure he realized what it was, what he was doing. It I had think been done before. Jesse explained it pretty well. He maybe, But yeah. I think Wilkie, you know. Wilkie stumbled on it. Yeah. But it, it had been done before, you know. Well, you know, Wilkie, Wilkie's responsible for inventing both the wheel and the key, hence his family name. <laughs> All right, moving on. Oh, so anyhow, um, yeah, moving the sight bar out will also, I mean, you'll if you're shooting a sight tape, as the sight bar goes out, your sight tape's going to get effectively longer. So your clicks become a little more fine, per se. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you lose max distance. Yeah, because, you, you, yeah, you lose clearance. And as your sight tape gets longer, you run out of adjustment in that regard. So for so, people shooting like redding. Yeah. A lot of women, especially, who can't get the bow speed necessary to reach 100 yards for reading alone, they pull the sight all the way in and get their sight tape there. Um, now, there's there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. You know, if, if you're doing that, then you got to think about scope diameter, um, magnification, all those other things that are affected by that as well. So, 
Ideally, you just shoot it at one spot. But Typically, the bigger the diameter, the more distortion you're going to see toward the edges. Mm-hmm. Not that you should be looking there. No. Now, if you're framing, what do we mean by framing? If you are using the scope, and this works for both recurve and compound, by the way. If you're using the aperture or the scope to determine the distance to the target, mm-hmm. but if you think you know the size of the target, yeah. well, then you're going to want to move this thing so that you have a ratio that's conformal to a mathematical quantity, Tails Theorem, which is basically a 100 to 1 ratio. All right. Here's how to cut to the, cut to the chase. At 10 meters, take a black piece of tape 10 centimeters across, put it up on the target, move your aperture back and forth until it exactly frames that 10 centimeter piece of tape. After that, you know exactly what you're looking at distance-wise if you know the size of the target. There you have it. So that's another reason to have some adjustable capability on your in and out on your on your sight bar. With World Field coming up this year, I think we're going to see some more questions on that. I'm sure you're right. So but we will address those. Yeah. If, we, if, uh, we both shot at World Fields. Yeah. So Fields. Qualified. My favorite game. Yeah, mine too. Makes you a much better archer. Got another question from Jim Forbes. Jim Forbes. I think he's, is he the local? No, nope, no, nope, it's another fellow. Different guy. Yep, different guy. Um, so Jim, Jim's the fellow who's uh, uh, gone from, going from compound to recurve, and he's a middle-aged fellow, and um, he's narrowed his choices down to either a Hoyt Prodigy, Prodigy RX, or a GMX. Both the Formula series say only Formula limbs will work, while the GMX accepts Hoyt limbs or ILF. Can you steer me in the right direction? Did you notice I didn't, I didn't, you know, explode at reading the words ILF. Yeah. Pretty good. I'm getting better. Instead of HDS. Yes. Can you steer me in the right direction? I'm a compound guy looking to expand my horizons in the recurve realm, if you'll recall. Yes, we do recall. So, all right. So let's just get to the chase here. What Hoyt was trying to do with the Prodigy was make a more accurate version of their original dovetail system that's been around since 1983. Remember, the purpose of the dovetails is to retain the limbs in case of a string failure. That's what dovetails do for you. But they also do something else that's kind of clever. They allow that base of the limb to float and find natural alignment the first time you pluck the string, and then it stays aligned. Um, Now, the, the stress level on that dovetail is lower on a formula bow at the interface of the riser and the limb than it is on the old system, the original Hoyt system, which they call a Grand Prix limb. Mm. A lot of people are confused by that. Mm -hmm. So that's a grand prelim. The the formula series say only formula limbs will work. Yes, you can can only use formula limbs, which are made by Hoyt and a couple of other companies. I think uh, SF and MK, for example, make, and Yuka in France. They make make limbs that'll kind of sort of fit. Yeah, it's got to be formula fittings. Yeah. And then, um, you know, your GMX will take basically any normal limb with the Hoyt dovetail. So a win and win limb, a Samic limb, an MK limb, all of those will fit in a GMX. The most common combination I see when I'm traveling, um, particularly with the Korean girls, is they like to shoot a GMX handle and, and oftentimes other than Hoyt limbs. But uh, actually noticed lately they're shooting more Hoyt limbs in those things. So it's kind of interesting. So, can I steer you in the right direction? Oh, gosh, Jim. I, I would tell you that if you're just starting out, it's going to be easier and cheaper for you to find 
regular white limbs than it is for you to get into a full formula system. And the more advanced you are, the more desirable the formula seems to be. And, and that's, you know, that's it for me for that advice. I'd, I'd go with the GMX and then you can put anybody's limb in that thing until you work your way up and wait, get yourself some nice quattros after that or top of the line win and win limb. You'd be a happy camper. Yeah. Hard to argue with, uh, the success of the GMX or the success of the formula. System. I'll tell you, I saw a ton of formulas at the Asian Championships in the hands of some, you know, top shooters. So, yeah. including some of the Koreans now. So, that's that's starting to shift. There was a while there where win and win was kind of coming on strong, and and just this past couple of, I mean, six eight months, Hoyt's kind of taken taken some of that back, which surprised me a little because they're not really trying. They're not really working hard at it. They're just kind of, you know, they sell every bow they make. But they're not trying hard to push them, which is kind of interesting. All right. Um, this is an interesting one. <clears throat> but first, the self-serving part. First, thank you both George and Steve for the show. Please tell your bosses the podcast, while an expense for Easton, is a great service to a new archer like myself. <laughs> Should I tell them how much Go it ahead. costs? Go ahead. Tell them. So I actually ordered the equipment on Amazon on uh, on Amazon Prime Day, which was like, Amazon's version of Black Friday a few months ago. And uh, we got a smoking deal. We got $30 off the recorder. Mm. So that put us into it exactly $297 total. That's microphones, windscreens, cables, recorder, headphones. I think it's paid for itself. Uh, Yeah. And then, well, you got to consider our podcast salaries too. I've doubled your podcast salary since we hit 10,000 listeners, just so you know. Yeah. So our, our, podcast salaries you know you factor that in at um zero yeah you add zero and, and it's still zero. you're still at 297 but it's double what it was all right so on to the questions all right um as someone that loves new tech and gear can you do a walkthrough of the engineering oh this is another formula question can you do a walkthrough of the engineering choices and thoughts behind the original hoyt dovetail design and the new formula design what were the goals of the engineers and can you say if they feel they've met those goals or do they still have problems they would like to solve i'm pretty sure they're happy with what they've done yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's proven itself more than once. In spite of, uh, you know, your your average archery forum talk, the fact that it's it's far more. It, when I see complete Hoyt bows, these days mostly I just see formula bows. Mm-hmm. And um, I see them in the hands of more and more top shooters who, quite frankly, aren't getting paid to shoot them. So that says something positive about it. Yeah. 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 So that's that's good stuff. As a new archer, I'm moving up in weight after my coach has given me the okay to do so. Wise choice. For recurve, what are the ways you use to know you are ready to step up and wait? If I can hold the bow at 60 seconds at full draw, six zero seconds at full draw, and execute a shot without any uh, undue contortions, then I know that I'm not overbowed. If I can't do that, I'm overbowed. Pull the bow to full draw, just shy of the clicker, hold it for one minute. If you cannot do that, if you start shaking like a, a dog passing a peach pit, then it's a good chance you're you're not dominating the bow. You need to dominate the bow. Not just, you know, wait for it to click and hope everything goes well. You need to dominate the bow. So if you want to dominate the bow, you've got to be stronger than what it takes to just shoot the shot in eight seconds or whatever. Right. Yeah. I So that 60-second rule, by the way, comes from Coach Pak Chung-nae, the guy who runs Win and Win, good friend of mine, who is also, you know, former top, Korean coach and and coach Lee used to teach the same thing probably still does so it's not a, a 
you're not trying to see if you can shoot it. You have to be able to shoot it. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Mm. Right. Dominate the bow. Right. So that's the answer to that one. Um, He's heard from some club members, heavier arrows benefit you on windy days. Should an archer always try to aim for the heaviest arrow they can reliably shoot for their bow draw? Pretty much, yeah, with some reasonable exceptions. If you've got like a 24-inch draw length and you can only manage 30 pounds, super heavy arrow might not serve, serve mm-hmm. you as well. There's a, there's a point there in between when you're probably better off with a little lighter arrow, a little more efficient for the weight that you're shooting. Yeah, but, but, I mean, most of our arrows have all been optimized yeah, for the spine. You know? Well, but I'll give you an example. I mean, some shooters ask me, well, what about these 150-grain points that German company makes? There's nobody, no one shooting well with 150 grain points. Nobody yeah. in recurve. All the top recurvers use 100. 100. Some are shooting 120. Mm-hmm. Some are shooting 110. But the vast majority are shooting 100 grains mm-hmm. on X10s. And that should tell you what you need to know about that. It's yeah. it's not the absolute heaviest you can get, but it's you know reasonable mass. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's something to factor. I mean, you want to have speed and the weight. I mean, if you're... Like for me, I can shoot a 410 grain arrow, but I still get 285 feet per second. So, you know, a little arrow weight doesn't scare me. But for a guy with a 28 inch draw, he's gonna be he's gonna be shooting that one around 245 feet per second. That's not gonna work too well for him. Yeah. So. so. Yeah. Mark Martinet, by the way, with those questions, and he's got one more for bow tuning and arrow selection tuning. What is the process you use? I'm assuming it starts. Set up the bow, draw to anchor with bow scale, and from there select the spine. What are the more drilled down specifics you should focus on to ensure your tune is as good as possible? How do you know which point weights you need? Is it more an art than a science? So, all right, for recurve, because I'm presuming this is a recurve question since his other questions are recurve. Let's address that, and then I want you, Steve, to address what it is on compound, but just briefly on the on the recurve side. Yeah, set up the bow. Um, presuming you're not an absolute rank beginner, if you can hold gold at 30 yards... Now you're in a position to do a proper bear shaft test. If you can't hold gold at 30 yards, move closer until you can. And what you want to do is, um, you know, make sure that you're at the correct draw length. Have a clicker on the thing. Figure out what the exact weight is with a good bow scale. And then use the chart following the selection chart closely, knowing that if you've got a um, wood and fiberglass limb, the arrow will react a little stiffer than what the chart calls for. Knowing that if you go to a, uh, say, a Dacron string, the arrow will act a lot stiffer than what the chart calls for. So, you know, keep those things in mind, those variables that are listed in there. And then um, the biggest thing, the biggest issue I see is people aren't necessarily always willing to make a small weight adjustment, which can have a big adjustment on the spine of the arrow, on the, mm-hmm. on the, on the outcome of tuning. People, for some reason, have this fetish about not touching their weight, right? I shoot 40 pounds. Well, if you shot 39.8, you'd have a perfect tune. They don't want to touch the bolts. Yeah, it's just weird. That's why they, they make them, you know. And by the way, the lighter the bow, the bigger the impact of a small, small adjustment. Change. And we're talking small adjustment in weight. And generally, I mean, I hate to say this, but 9 out of 10 of the average shooters I see are overbowed anyway. Meaning that, you know, they can't pass that 60-second rule or, you know, they're struggling to get through the clicker on every shot. And it isn't because of anything other than just too much bow weight. Yeah, they could back off three, four pounds. and Easy. Not see a huge impact in performance, but see a huge impact upwards in scores. Yeah. So point weights. Follow the chart. Don't go buying 150 grain freaking points. 
please. It's just silly. And, you know, follow the chart. You know, the chart says X amount of point weight, and it's not, we didn't just pull this stuff out of the cloud. You know, this, this is stuff that's been proven over many years by many, many top shooters. And uh, is it more of an art than a science? No, it's kind of both. I mean, the art part is shooting well. The science part is follow the chart. Mm-hmm. We've done the work for you. Now, on the compound side. Yeah, on the compound side, when people ask me, is it more of an art than a science? Um, yeah, I, I would say it is because on a compound, the importance of spine is a lot less critical. I have a shooter who shot anywhere from 380 to 500 out of the same bow a year ago. And, and they all work. And won tournaments with them. So there's there's a lot you can do with length, obviously. Was that Galantine by any chance? No. No. I don't want to name names. But it wasn't Braden. Um, but anyhow, what I look for is, I mean, so when people ask me, what should I shoot? Should I use the chart? Yeah, you should use the chart. You should start with what it recommends. And then if you have any questions or you really want to find out what works the best, you want to invest and, and find the best grouping arrow, buy a spine on each side of what it recommends. Try them all. That's the only way you can really tell is shoot it out of your bow because your setup, your tune, everything else, the way you set your stabilizers can all have a huge effect on how the bow shoots through paper, downrange. There's a, there's a lot that goes into that. So I don't like that advice. You just told people they got to buy three dozen arrows to figure out which doesn't work. So. If you, if you want to find out the best, that's the best way to do it. What about point weight? Point weight, I mean, that's strictly a matter of take six arrows, put one point weight in them, shoot them a lot. Do the same with another point weight. It's for me. It's all about shooting and because I, I'm, I'm a non-believer in, in paper tuning and things of that nature. So I want what scores the best, and to find out what scores the best, I've got to shoot a bunch of scores with a bunch of different stuff. By the way, if you did paper tune a well set up tune for yourself, you might find it's got a horrendous tear, or that it doesn't punch a perfect hole. Yeah, or you take. You know, you take a bow that you think doesn't shoot that great, shoot it through paper, it shoots an awesome hole. Take a bow that just pounds down range, shoot it through paper, it's got a terrible paper tear. So there's there's a lot that goes into that. But I mean if that's if that's what you wanted to do, if you wanted the totally ultimate bow setup and you're fixated on shooting a certain poundage, then you would buy a few different spines of arrows and test. Ouch. Now the much more economical way, turn your limb bolts a little bit. Ah, I like that better. Yeah. That's what, that's what people feel. You know, they think, oh, I, I think I need a weaker spine. If you think you need a weaker spine, drop four pounds and then let me know. Doesn't again. even take four. I mean, you could do it with two or less. Yeah, I mean, take a take a turn out of the bolts. Simple as that. Yeah, it's not going to do a whole lot to anything, but your tune. I like that idea a lot better. Yeah, I just don't see it as often as I think I would like. I had to get there in a roundabout way. I see. I see what you did there. <laughs> Pretty solid. Marcus Anir was posting uh, his experience trying to tune a, a Hoyt. Hyper Edge Elite. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's doing a thread that's kind of interesting on his archery-forum.com in Australia. And um, check that out. Yeah. He's got some photos. And one of the things I noticed right off is he's got that bolt dialed out. He's got that bow dialed out at least, I'd say, I don't know, half an inch or so. So he probably took four or five, six turns uh-huh. out. Yep. Just to get it to tune, right? He's playing around with different stabilizer setups right now. It's pretty interesting stuff. Check it out. We'll take a look. Yeah. So, all right. What do you got going on for... Uh, we have the Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States coming up. Yeah, it was, uh, I'm, I'm heading out of town. I'm going to go spend some time in, uh, Mexico. Nice. So yeah. get away from this, uh, minus, uh, 
minus temperature weather we've got here. Yeah, I think it was like minus seven Celsius the other day. Ouch. So I think we're expecting snow this week. Yeah, today is probably what, plus six, plus ten, maybe yeah, something not, like that. I mean they've been beautiful days, just cold. Yeah. You know? I was I was up on the mountain hunting the last few days and it was too nice because then everyone else was out on the mountain too. Uh, I needed some crappy weather so that people would go home. What were you hunting for? Deer. Uh huh. Deer. Mule deer. Yeah. So, you know, some of that organic meat. I see. But, um, yeah, I'm heading to Mexico. So I presume you didn't get a deer. No, no. I'm not good at bow hunting. Well, bow hunting taking your bow for a hike. Yeah, I'm a bow hiker, <laughs> not a bow hunter. I'm not a bow hunter either. But it was, it was fun, you know, getting up around six, 7,000 feet and hiking up and down the mountain. It's probably what I need right now. You know, it's good for me. So I could use the same. Yeah. You're, uh, you're a little jacked up right now. Yeah, I've got a pinched nerve in my back. I can't walk properly. So yeah. uh, unfortunately, bow hiking is out of the question for me. <laughs> George has been walking around the office hunched over. I mean, it's uh, it, it's kind of hard to watch. I'm sure it's not very amusing. Well. I, I don't find it very amusing. <laughs> we're laughing right now. But, yeah. You know, we're not. So <laughs> I feel for you. So I discovered I, could sh- I can shoot a traditional bow traditional style because you're already hunched over when you're shooting traditional style. Ah. So I was demonstrating our president, Mark Pizzoni, yeah. who's an avid compound hunter. You know, he used to run Bowtech. He's mm-hmm. an avid compound bow hunter. He's gone and gotten himself a Hoyt Buffalo. He's into it. And the, the man has got good form. You know, it's awesome because we have, we have a portion of our office that's empty, and he let me build a 20-yard range there. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. You don't, like, like going down the road to the archery center is such a big burden. Well, you know, I don't take smoke breaks, so if I have that 10-minute you know, break, I can run out and shoot three or four ends. Yeah, that's right. You can't do that. Just You can't jump in the car and, and drive the 800 meters to the archery range and nope. do that. It's much easier to just grab your bow next to your desk and just walk, fling away. walk a few yards and yeah. fling away. It's awesome. I have a feeling that we're probably not supposed to mention the fact that we have an archery range in the office. Well, we have a range. No one has said that we've been shooting. Oh, okay. Good point. All right. It's just a theoretical type thing. Did you go to the Bill Clinton school of... (laughs) Never mind. There is no range. One ping only, Vasily. All right. Somebody got that reference. I know somebody did. Hey, if you've got more questions, um, we're more than happy to field them. Just remember to uh, email us at podcast at eastontp.com. Podcast at eastontp.com. And we will be more than happy to answer your questions. We've got a few more that came in, but I think we're going to call it a show here at 48 We always go long. So we're going to just try to be disciplined here. This one we said half hour, but we went well past that. So now we can do whatever we want. All right, fine. So what are we going to talk about next time? Next time we're going to talk about the outcome from um, Bangkok because uh, Bangkok's coming up pretty quickly. All right. We've got some indoor season stuff that's coming up that I think people are still going to want to know what's going on with tuning and, and things of that nature. We've got um, a number of questions that we've received from listeners wanting the minutiae of tuning the the launcher blade and, and that kind of thing for indoor and I think that'll cover you know what we should some. talk about serving thread okay what do you got in mind just talk about serving thread we can talk about uh, torque free D loops too yeah knock fit things like that yep people you know people don't think about this stuff but obviously you know since you designed a lot of our knocks you probably got a lot of that knowledge in your head mm, there is some of that still although it's fading rapidly but, uh, yeah, we can talk about some knock stuff. Uh, you know, interesting question came up 
this morning um, on Marcus's forum. In fact, a guy was posting, and, and you know, again, our sport is full of resources for information, but some of them are so arcane to get to. So this guy had biter knocks, right? Which is an asymmetric, the standard biter knocks, mm-hmm. an asymmetric design. And he'd gotten some biter hunter style knocks, which are asymmetrical design, like ours. Yep. And he's shooting groups at 50 meters, I think with a recurve, judging from the size of the groups. And there's about, oh, I'd say about eight inch difference in impact height between these two. Oh, up and down. Yeah. Okay. I thought you were going to say in group size. No, no. No. Group size was about the same, but you know, the the AC knocks were shooting, you know, in the middle and the other ones were shooting low. Well, that's why they're asymmetrical. They need a different knocking point. If you want to change back to a regular... So in the past, I've had people come up to me and go, yeah, you know, the biter knock, I get better distance with it. Because you're using a knocking point set up for a standard knock and you throw a biter AC knock on there and it acts like your knocking point just dropped a quarter inch. Mm -hmm. I'm exaggerating, but, you know, a substantial amount. And you fooled yourself into thinking you're getting more distance. See, I never... I'm all about the symmetrical knock. I don't want to have to worry about it. Yes, and here's why. What happens if you shoot a biter knock upside down? It goes about eight inches low. Exactly. So, by the way, I've shoot biter knocks. I've shot biter knocks for centuries. It seems you know yeah. they're great knocks, but um, I, that a lot of shooters will take a black sharpie and mark the top surface of that knock so that they know mm-hmm. absolutely not to flip that thing over. Because if you do, you're gonna you're gonna regret it. Seventy meters, you're gonna be down in the blue ring. So, just a little thing like that little quick input little quick input there all right well i think that wraps up the show yeah end of show end of show adios bye